You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. For over 40 years, Dr. John Landre has studied predators and their prey in the western U.S. and northern Mexico. He's conducted one of the longest studies of cougar ecology and behavior to date and has published over 80 scientific articles on his work. He's the originator of the concept of the landscape of fear that proposed that fear of prey for their predators drives many, if not all, ecological processes. An important aspect of this concept is that predators become instrumental in maintaining the balance between prey species and their habitat, not so much by killing their prey, but by affecting how they use the landscape. John's book, Phantoms of the Prairie, The Return of Cougars to the Midwest, looks at the phenomenon of cougars actually moving back into the Great Plains region of the U.S., John's teaching at Western Oregon University, and he serves on the board of Cougar Rewilding Foundation, whose goal is the eventual reestablishment of viable cougar populations in the eastern U.S. What's taking so long? What are the big barriers today to cougars in the Adirondacks? Well, is, uh, the main reason, I think, is because of the, uh, the, the agencies. Uh, they don't really want them back. Uh, their official status is we don't have anything planned in the immediate future. And that stems from their their bias toward um, uh, toward hunting rather than to what the what the people want. And so, what we find is that even though there's a lot of support to bring cougars back to the east and specifically to their Adirondacks, these agencies really are dragging their feet on it. They they bring up a lot of different uh, excuses. Um, they bring up um, reasons that you know the various reasons that they um they shouldn't bring them back it seems to be generational because there's enough time has passed that different uh leaders and agencies um have come and gone um whole staffs have probably changed over in the last 30 years and i don't know it's just it's just weird for it to hang around generationally like that when it seems like people are, are more interested in cougars than they ever have been yeah, it, it it takes a longer a long period of time for an agency, um, a game agency, to to actually change its ways because they, uh, through a variety of different methods, they they really do uh, maintain the status quo uh, over generations. You know, we have specific colleges and universities that that put out wildlife managers, um, which primarily are anti-predator and and uh, prefer um, the the game species that hunters can shoot. Uh, and they're the ones that most most likely most likely to, to be hired by these agencies. And so the people who actually, even though like the the, the New York agency does have a an active a kind of conservation aspect to it, that doesn't blend with the with the uh, the hunting aspect of it. Uh, so that the people who are making decisions regarding whether we bring cougars back are the people the same people who are making decisions about wildlife and not they're not the same people who are working with bald eagle recovery or or some other endangered species that hunters don't really care about uh, and so but we find is that because of this it you get the this generational lag time uh, that's 
it takes a long, long time. And, and if you don't restructure the, the whole agency itself, it, it can persist for, for generations because, because of that. It's, you know, as these people retired there, they are replaced by people who would think, think in the same, same manner. There are a few, a few game agencies that are, could call themselves, truly call themselves wildlife agencies, but most of them are still uh, game agencies and they're um, either expressed or unexpressed uh, mission is to provide more game in the bag for the hunters and anything that gets in the way of that predators uh, is something that they, they don't want to deal with. Uh, and specifically in the East, uh, they don't want to bring back. Well, I'm dis- dissatisfied with the progress. We need to speed it up. So what can we do today? I mean, it seems like the people don't worry too much about it. I mean, talk about the surveys and the, and the things that's, um, that you know about the attitude of non-hunters toward uh, cougars in the East. In, in the, my upcoming book, um, I address three different what I call landscapes. One is what we call the biological landscape. That is, uh, could, uh, could the East in general support cougars? Uh, and indeed it can. I mean, it's just having, having worked with cougars in the West for many years um, and seeing where they can live, it's, you look at the East and you go, well, they can live anywhere they want. Uh, and so the, the, the biological landscape is very favorable, even though um, there was a study Early on in uh, the Adirondacks, for example, where the fellow concluded there wasn't much habitat, but he was basing it upon that the then prevalent idea that cougars were were uh, a species of, of wilderness. They had to have wilderness for very little people. He he came to that conclusion because back back then, back in the 60s and 70s, he went he went out to the west, and of course in the west at that time, the only place you could find them were in the more remote areas because they'd been killed off. And so he brought that idea back to the East and made his conclusions. We now know they can live pretty much anywhere they want. And so indeed, the, the biological landscape in the East is, is quite favorable. Um, I, in my book, I go through it and look at the, the whole region in general, and then also each of the different states in terms of just where, if that was the only landscape we were considering, the land, that's, that could be a lot of places. Uh, the next landscape to look at is the social landscape. That I, I call the social landscape, and that's the people's attitude. Are the people favorable toward uh, cougars or not? And um, because one of the things that they, that's constantly brought up is, oh, we need more we need more surveys to see what people will think. We need we need to go carefully. And I go, we don't need any more surveys. I mean, we've got there's a publication that came out toward the, the first part of the century that was an uh, annotated list, a bibliography of all of the different surveys that had been done up to that time. And there was 50 of them, and most of those were favorable, including um, surprisingly some of the surveys of, of ranchers and, and hunters, where it's you would expect them to be um, almost 100% against, but they're not. They're you know 30, 40, uh, consistently percent of them are uh, are favorable to the idea. After that, since the, since 2000, there's been a, at least another 30 or so. Survey. So we have survey after survey after survey, all demonstrating a, um, a high support as much as 70% or more um, for the return of, of cougars to the East. And that brings us to the, to the third landscape, and that's what I call the political landscape. In the political landscape, I address the, um, the agencies. These are the, the, the game agencies, the hunter agencies that exist in each state, uh, supposedly to, to uh, 
take care of and manage our wildlife for all of us. However, they got their start primarily by um, trying to keep people from from overkilling uh, wildlife back in the back in the you know 1800s and early 1900s. They're mandated to take care of wildlife for everyone, but they're set up basically to um, provide more game for hunters. And of course, anything that interferes with that, poaching, for example. So they had so game wardens, uh, they, I forget what conservation officers, I think they call them now, were um, a big part of the the initial organization and still are. Uh, <laughs> turns out poaching is still a big a big factor, uh, or that uh, you know these conservation hunters can't seem to control uh, their own their own kind. Um, and so, uh, conservation officers. Poaching aspect of uh, of these game agencies is still a big budget item. The mm-hmm. other big area is predators. They're constantly trying to demonstrate that if we we do we reduce the predators, we in, we have more wildlife, more huntable wildlife in terms of deer, elk, and whatever. Uh, it goes all the way down to um, pheasants and all kinds of different birds that that are hunted. And those decisions are made by the uh, the game agencies. And so that's a that's a third level that one has to consider when we look at these different landscapes that, that you have to su- superimpose on each other to see where cougars could live in the east. And when you put that last layer on, it's a big no. They don't want them back. They they will use whatever means they can to drag their feet to bring them back. Uh, this is why they say there's no immediate um, uh, plans to bring them back. They just they don't want them back because the hunters don't want them back. Listeners of the Rewilding Earth podcast will start to see a pattern forming here. In the last several episodes, (laughs) we've talked about a whole bunch of different issues. And the one thing that ties them all together is these hunting agencies. I like that you call them that. Um, You might as well, since the commissioner has to be a hunter to even be considered for the position. Well, then you're a hunting agency and you're not really yeah. acting uh-huh. on behalf of the, the benefit and, and uh, of, of all the people. So, and it's really only a fraction of the uh, hunting community that's actually a, so it's a vocal minority of a minority because most people are not hunters. We really need to put some numbers on these so that we, we uh, appreciate just how um, biased all of this is, is that we have this whole, this agency that, uh, 90, over 90% of its ex- actions are the benefit. Uh, I think nationally now it's 4% of the population. Hmm. And you go, oh, that's not quite right. Um, and so there's, it, 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 and it frustrates a lot of people. People have tried to work with these agencies uh, only to find that they, they will um, let you speak, but they won't listen. Uh, they will tend to uh, try to um, minimize what you say. They will um, even as much as belittle what you say. Uh, they'll marginal, marginalize all of these arguments that are scientifically uh, based, but they'll marginalize them all uh, just so that uh, they don't have to deal with them. They will even recognize some of the signs, but once they've recognized some of that science, there's a big but. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. 
You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. You know, the, the, everybody, everybody who's a constituent is going to raise their voice and, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that it seems that the agencies are set up so that the only voices are heard are amplifying voices that are a, an extreme minority of the population, as we said earlier. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, we usually stop the discussion there with, but how do you change things? And we've talked to some people in the past who have said, I won't even be on, I won't try, I'll say, we need to get more involved with this. And my naive attempt to just get to the bottom of it. And I think a lot of people would actually mm-hmm. say that, well, why aren't we more involved? Why aren't there more biologists? Why aren't there more scientists um, on these commissions and it's been explained thoroughly to me now that it's a fiefdom and it's very well protected and they allow people like you to come in and make public statements to pretend as though they're open but they're not listening like you said they're not they're not there to listen they just want everybody to pretend like they're open look we're listening to this other voice a dissenting voice on our major opinion (laughs) And do you feel those same frustrations where it's, it's not at all a part of, you know, it's not like I could go and try to get on one of these commissions myself. It's, it's not open like that. Most of them are appointed uh, positions, appointed by the governor. Governors where you have um, that are more influenced by the hunting industry, obviously would be more likely to appoint um, people who are more conducive to the hunting industry or the, or the livestock industry. Um, they, they rarely have people who are there to represent the general public because they want it. They don't think that the general public is nice enough. enough, I guess, to, yeah. to, to make those decisions, which they, they are. I mean, <laughs> they're more, most people in the general public know more about wildlife than most hunters do. Here in Oregon, the, the governor who should know better because he's not a hunter, um, he tried to appoint a guy that was a trophy hunter. And oh, uh, she got, I remember that. She got slammed for it, and, and his name was withdrawn. But, but you go, well, why did she even try to do that when, when we know that the public, oh, that's one of the, the biggest concerns that the public has relative to the management of wildlife, and that's just killing animals just as a trophy. The hunting industry continues to, to point to their surveys that indicate that the general public still widely supports hunting for food. Uh, then they kind of mumble and, and kind of quickly step over the um, those percentages as they precipitously drop uh, to the, um, in support of other reasons for, for killing wildlife. And one of the lowest ones in approval is, is trophy hunting because yeah. it's, it's, it, it violates not only um, what we perceive as being sane, but also it violates one of their, their principle of supposedly guiding, princi- guiding tenants uh, from the North American model of wildlife conservation, and that is uh, the frivolous killing of wildlife. You know, how much more frivolous can you get to just kill an animal just to say that you've done it, to put it, yeah. put its head up on the wall? But this, this thing, these are the types of things that persist. One of the reasons they throw up uh, relative to why they don't, they don't need to um, think about reintroducing uh, cougars at this moment is because it's, they hold that pipe dream of recolonization that somehow uh, these animals are going to move from the from the west to the east. This has been a common theme that was that's been 
even pushed by some of the scientists, uh, based upon the number of animals that have been found basically dead uh, as they tried, tried to cross the, the east, or the, the Great Plains, and, um, or they showed up dead in the east, like the, the famous Connecticut cougar. It is indeed a pipe dream. It's, it's something that most of these animals are males, um, and so we're looking at decades, if not you know, decades, of, of anything possible could happen. Um, and, it, and that just delays it even more. Yeah. Uh, and that's what the that's what these agencies want. They want they want an excuse not to do anything. They say, oh, well, they're dangerous, and also, oh, but they're they're coming. And, they're, and if they come on their own, well, that's that's fine. It takes us off the hook. I mean, you put to bed the idea that we need another survey, and that the public is not amenable yeah. to the idea of cougars in the east. All of that, and we have a pretty experienced listener base here. <laughs> they don't need to hear another thing about how. Um, you know, I, I was tempted to ask you, why would a cougar want to live in the East? And then I saw your map and I'm like, this has been covered before. This is very, very well researched. I saw how you put the buffers of all of the different disturbances and, and prove that cougars can live within those zones. And, and you look at that map of the Adirondacks and you're like, yeah, with that, uh, you can see cougars there, a very healthy population of cougars there. We could talk about that today, but what mm-hmm. what I think all of this is pointing to is this agency thing. Like that we started with it, it's just that way and it's generational. I wanted to know why it was so locked down. Why couldn't a new commissioner come in, a younger person and all that, and you put that to bed. You said it's a generational thing. It's It really feels locked in. What I think listeners are getting here is over the last several podcasts, we keep bringing up these agencies and the and our frustration. And I wonder what you might say to what the what's the final thing it's going to take? We've developed it's it's coast to coast. It's established everywhere in the same way. We always hear it's the hunters. It's a really tiny vocal minority. You say it's uh, the number is four percent of the population benefits from, from the decisions that these commissions make, um, that these are really hunting organizations. And, and okay, so we've heard a lot about that. What is your idea about what it's going to take to actually materially, systemically change that? Two things. The first is we, uh, we do, re- do really need to um, look at uh, how these agencies are financed. Um, all the data indicate that that people who don't hunt, people specifically what we call wildlife watchers, contribute uh, a tremendous amount of um, economic incentive or gains to um, from their activity, much more than than hunters do. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, uh, not, very little of that money actually reaches agencies where to, to pay salaries and turn the lights on. And so, what we need to do is to to somehow um, change that so that a majority of the funding comes from basically from the uh, from the general fund because in a lot of states the the majority of the funding for wildlife still comes from hunter licenses and this is why they're complaining there's and oh there's fewer hunters and so we have less for wildlife what they're saying basically is not they don't have less for wildlife they have less for the for game species and that's what has them worried how are they going to how are they going to meet the needs of their their hunter clientele if their hunter clientele is is getting smaller and and some of them are very very reluctant to to accept general fund money the state of idaho uh, proudly brags that not one dollar of the general fund goes toward their agency 
And the reason they, they say that that's, that's the case is because it, it keeps them pure. That is, it, they, they're not controlled by the, by the politics of the state. Huh, but which is exactly what we want. No problem. Yeah, they have no problem being controlled by the, the politics of the hunters. And, uh, and the politics of the hunters um, causes them to do things that are you know, ecologically unsustainable. And so it varies across the states, but there's still quite a few states. All the states still have a majority of the money that they use for wildlife uh, coming from these, from these hunting uh, license fees. If you follow the trail, they may, you may see that a, a, an agency gets a certain percent of general funds. But it goes toward things that um, aren't related specifically to wildlife management. They've encapsulated the the money from hunters for a very specific reason: management of, of game species, which of course they include in that a lot of, of wildlife species that we as the public would consider not to be a game species. Most of the most of what they call the vermin species that um, they just kill on sight for the fun of it. Yeah, and, uh, and so we need, to, we need to change that. We need to. Every state should be um, should be using general funds. And when I refer to it as as a, as a reinvestment in wildlife, because of all of the tremendous amount of money that uh, Wildlife Watching generates in each state, in terms of taxes, some of that tax, some of those taxes should be reinvested in the programs that bring in the money. It's like the lottery. Well, here what we find is that the states are getting a uh, tremendous amount of, of money millions of dollars, I think billions on the national level, millions of dollars from wildlife activities and not paying a dime back. What they need to decide is that we need to the, to dedicate a certain amount of that money. I looked at it, and again, I, I worked this out in my, in my book, the, um, uh, the uh, Guardians of the Forest, um, bringing cougars and, and wolves back to the east. I look at that and say, well, what would be a reasonable amount of money to, to reinvest? And I was from other types of um, analyses, I, I just picked 15%, 15% reinvestment. And that would tremendously increase the, the, the budget of these, these agencies uh, for paying salaries for turning the lights on. And the more salaries that you pay for wildlife that comes from the general fund, the larger that percentage of people who deal with wildlife represent the people and not just the hunter. My ideal vision of a, uh, a wildlife agency is where the, the hunting department has the corner office and all the rest of the building is run by or is, is occupied by the people who, who are actually working with wildlife relative to how people want them to work with wildlife. As we know, money talks. I mean, that's, yeah. what, that's the hunters use. They say, we pay, we say, okay, well, that's, that's how we need to pay. You know, they, they talk about schemes. That, you know, people say, but we need to, we, we, if we want to have a voice, we need to pay. We are paying. It's just that they're not taking our money and using it for the right thing. The other is we do need, really need the, a restructuring of the departments themselves. There are some that are just, you know, so archaic that they just, they do have, they are still fish and game. And so you, you have a game department yeah. and that's it. There are some that call themselves wildlife, but they are primarily, it was a name change only. <laughs> for example, in California, which is one of the more better states, uh, the agency changed its name from Fish, Fish and Game Division of Wildlife, but the commission didn't. It's still the Fish and Game Commission. And you know, well, that says a lot. <laughs> I'm sort of scared of your answer to this next question, but this is uh -huh. there a federal 
solution or a piece of a solution here or is this really a state-by-state effort like project coyote is taking on right now getting rid of um, working state by state for um, the killing contest for coyotes i mean is it really going to have to be a campaign like that or is there any part of this a federal solution where we could get something worked into a bill to support what you're talking about this this real systemic change there is a, a bill in front of Congress that um, is looking at ways to add additional funding to um, to wildlife or to wild, these wildlife agencies, kind of like the Pittman Robbins money, but um, it comes from a different source. And initially, this was done by the supposedly blue ribbon panel that um, had several choices. And the first choice they had was to use oil and gas excise tax money. Uh, which was a horrible idea, and people pointed mm. it out to him. And but the the latest bill supposedly would would be what just what I mentioned would be reinvesting a certain amount of the um, money that on a national level that uh, wildlife watchers contribute to the federal budget. And uh, and so it come from the from the general fund of the federal budget. If this should be passed, then automatically there's going to be a, a big chunk of money that's going to be going to the states. Um, specifically for a variety of um, activities. One is to is to fund all these species action plans that that they were supposed to develop um, relative to um, to the federal level. So we might see some movement in that direction, but it depends upon what species that the uh, the states deemed as being worthwhile to con- consider. And not surprisingly, uh, cougars aren't on very many of those lists. Thinking about all the different options that that I could come up with and that I've heard other guests talk about, I'm I'm looking for uh-huh. a unifying one thread, one piece of leverage that kind of kicks it all off. And it actually doesn't sound as daunting to get people to put things like uh, cougars on the species action plan list or the list of priorities when money is coming mm-hmm. from the Fed that backs that up because money makes everything possible. Money solves all problems in this situation and and they they then have to contend with the public outcry that cougars need to be in this example taken seriously and get put on those lists for species action plans Mm -hmm. i feel like i finally i'm finally hearing what that leverage point that one thread that connects all of these things together might be the important point is not so much that that we need to pay but we need to say Uh, this is where indeed we do need involvement we do need people pressuring uh, these agencies, uh, even at the state that that the level they are now, pressuring these agencies to get off their butts and do something. Yeah. Well, uh, we've been we've been doing that without money actually, all this time, and we've gotten this far. Mm-hmm. But 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 if yeah, feds are dumping mm-hmm. money into it, it might just be the catalyst that we needed because we've been active at the state level as much as anybody could, well, as much as we have, it doesn't matter whether we've done, you know, we've done a a gargantuan collective amount of, of organizing and outcry to date. It's only amounted to what Mm -hmm. we have now, which is a dire situation. It's still not close to right. And I'm looking for that thread. And I think it feels hopeful what you're saying. It might be a little bit more than just a ray of hope because um, we've talked about everything else. And most of the time people walk away with scratching their heads going, yeah, I don't know when this is going to change. I don't, I don't know how you breathe this out of the program. Mm-hmm. Missouri has been a prime example of, of just taking a very small percentage of, a, of the sales tax, I think one eighth of a, of a percent, and dedicated toward the, 
their wild wildlife department. They've got more money than you know what to do with. Unfortunately, they don't. Um, there's still a heavy hunting influence on how some of that money is spent. You still you still have to have the people saying, "Well, okay, we we do pay. Now we want to say, and what we want is this, and, and not be passive about it, and 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 wait until the agency decides to do something. We need to be telling these agencies what to do." Well, just so everybody knows, uh, if you're new to rewilding or you're new to this topic, um, welcome. <laughs> We've been talking about this for, for many, many years, decades. Uh, and, and today you're hearing about uh, the problems. Now, this might not be as exciting as talking about the first cougar, you know, touching down in the Adirondacks today. Um, but that, that will only come, I think, because of what we talked about today, the issues that you're bringing up here and the solutions. While Missouri might not be getting it right, they sure do get brought up an awful lot on the Rewilding podcast when people point to examples Mm -hmm. of uh, allocation of funds and how powerful that is in backing up our on-the-ground work where we can then phone in and we can go to public hearings and we comment and, and have that backing us up, I think is a really is is a direct line to seeing cougars hit the ground in the Adirondacks and possibly someday even in the Smokies. You've mentioned that before. Um, the best places are the the public lands, and there's lots there's still lots of them across the east. There's still some nice sizable ones. Um, these would be the the places where we could we could inter- reintroduce cougars, um, and from there then they could move into some of these other areas and basically fill out that biological landscape as much as we would um, basically socially let them. And so that's why one of the conclusions I've drawn in my book is that why should we care what the hunters say? First of all, they have a a perverted sense of of how nature works. Uh, It's so egocentric that it has to revolve around them. Um, Second of all, that leads to forcing the agencies to to take non-ecological, scientifically-based actions which then exacerbates the problem. And, and they're only 5% or 4% of us. Why yeah. should we even consider them? Um, but we do. If bringing back wolves and cougars to the east bring deer numbers back to a sensible level that um, can be sustained over time, hunters will have a, a better opportunity to, to hunt deer in, in the future than what they've created now in terms of an excess population that's that's prone to um, massive die-offs because of, uh, of habitat destruction and also disease. I think that's a really good point. Why should we care what hunters think? Mm-hmm. Guardians, guardians of the forest, returning wolves and pumas to the east. When can we expect to get our hands on this? I'm almost done with it. I'm, I'd say 95% done with it. So I'm, I'm hoping sometime this year I'll actually... Um, finish it. I'm right now revising some of the chapters. If you want to get a little taste of it, though, John did make a contribution to us last year at rewilding.org. If you just put in Guardians of the Forest in the search at at rewilding.org, you will find his article, um, which is sort of like an excerpt, right, from the forthcoming book. So if you guys want a taste of it sooner than later, you can go there and read about it there. Uh, John, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I, I feel like parts of the conversation are repeats of the things that we lament um, as conservationists a lot about stage agencies and, and federal agencies and this attitude toward wildlife, uh, the North America, current North American model of management. But I feel like we made some breakthroughs today, too. And I would like to talk a little bit more about that uh, on the page. So wherever you're listening to this, 
We'll put more resources here from John and myself uh, to make sure that you get the biggest, best picture of this situation. And you can also take some action, listeners, uh, so that we're always moving toward this goal of cougars in the east and wolves. Didn't even get to talk about wolves. But we have talked about it before, no. um, and we've got to have you back on. Certainly when the book is out, we're going to have you back on so you can talk about more of these issues with us. Thank you, John. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.